The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Today is episode number 177. We're still going every week. We still have a lot of attention on the addiction epidemic. We know that probably you're still quarantined or you're still wearing masks and gloves, but while COVID-19 is going to go away eventually, the addiction epidemic is not going to go away, not that quickly. And so we want to keep everybody's attention on that because it still needs a lot of attention. The addiction pandemic is still a very big threat to our society. So if you're in a position to do something about it, please do. One of the things you can do that's pretty easy is to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a thumbs up on our video and ring that bell so that you get notified when we have new episodes. Today we have an interview with a gentleman named Greg Nance. Greg's earliest memories are chasing his dad on evergreen forest trails. He wasn't very fast and he couldn't run very far, but he loved it. Running has always made him smile. But for a few years, he lost his way. Overwhelmed by depression after his grandpa Charlie's debilitating stroke, he turned to alcohol and opioid painkillers at age 16. The free fall only stopped with the help of compassionate mentors and a daily running ritual. In the years since, he's jogged 49 countries and run some of the toughest foot races on the planet. He set 10 fastest known time running records and recently completed seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Now he's gearing up for the biggest challenge yet, a 3,000 mile run across America. 3,000 miles to celebrate 3,000 days sober. On March 16, 2020, he celebrated 3,000 days sober. To commemorate the milestone, he's aiming to run 3,000 miles between New York City and Seattle and explore America's addiction epidemic along the way. For years, he was in denial about his struggles with alcohol and painkillers. Fearing the stigma, he refused to call himself an addict or alcoholic. He felt isolated and alone. But as he slowly opened up, he's realized that his struggles are far more common than he imagined. Greg hopes to play a part in destigmatizing addiction and promoting mental health. Overcoming addiction is a marathon, not a sprint. And we've heard that before. Let's talk to Greg Nance. So Greg Nance, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to hear your story. I told a little bit about it in your intro, but I want to hear more from you. So the way I like to start is to tell us, how did you get addicted to drugs and alcohol in the first place? Yeah, if, if we rewind to uh, age 16, I was living with my, uh, my grandfather and my hero, my role model, this just amazing, amazing fellow who I had just learned so many life lessons from. And it always been there was the one adult where I feel like I could really kind of connect and be like open and honest about how I was feeling and know that he would understand that in his way. And um, we had a great relationship. Um, he one day goes from being one of the strongest people I'd ever known to uh, a debilitating stroke where he very quickly begins uh, kind of fading away like before my eyes. And I felt uh, powerless to stop that. I felt like I he had always been there for me and I'm not 
there for him and just lots of grief, lots of like pain and kind of just struggle. And I didn't know how to kind of process that. I didn't know how to talk about that. And it was just overwhelming, um, just sadness and despair. And from uh, those feelings, I was seeking some kind of comfort, some kind of relief. And um, I found that malt liquor, drinking a 40 of Old English or um, like high gravity, um, that would make me temporarily feel better. And then it was not just 40 ounces, but 60 or 80 ounces, then 120. And then, hey, why drink malt liquor when I can drink malt liquor and vodka? Um, and so really just started kind of self-medicating initially on weekends at parties, very social, but it works really well if I drink it after you know, school, on school nights too, then right after classes and before long, even with buddies in the high school parking lot before classes even began. And so um, that was the kind of entry point for me. And before long that you know escalates, I've got, uh, I grew up in the suburbs outside Seattle. We've got um, you know, a friend whose dad's a doctor who actually is, you know, is prescribing and he has a medicine cabinet just full of opiates and wow, you know, alcohol is great, but my goodness, painkillers. Wow. And uh, especially when you're not even having to buy it, like it's no skin off your back just to steal a little bit from your buddy's dad and you're all doing it together. It's fun. Right. And so um, at the time I wouldn't have called any of that addiction. It, for me, it was just, I'm having a good time and I'm feeling better. Um, though, as I look back with some hindsight, it um, clearly a very kind of abusive uh, uh, relationship with this and one in which uh, my own kind of mental health is, uh, is is suffering as a result. My own physical health, of course, is struggling. And then my relationships with others, of course, as well. Right. Did you, were you into sports when you were in school? I was. And so I was able to kind of hide the challenge and the problem I was having because I was a talented baseball player playing on multiple teams. And you teams. could still do it. You could still play baseball and be getting drunk. Absolutely. And in fact, I, um, the one time uh, in high school where that it kind of came home to roost, I, I was on the varsity tennis team. We're doing suicides. We run basically the length of the court over and over again. And I had drank before practice uh, too much and I ended up puking on the side of the court and, you know, coach wasn't born yesterday. It's like, that's vodka that you just puked up. Um, and he took me kind of under his wing uh, and said, Hey, look, I know you're going through something like, let's talk about it. And, uh, Coach Anderson, uh, it was really like just amazing moment where it was the first time an adult was like, hey, like I, I know you need help and I want to be there for you. And he was, you know, a beloved teacher, beloved coach. And um, that that was just a really wonderful moment where I was able to kind of like get myself back on track momentarily. And of course, ended up relapsing multiple times thereafter. But that um, uh, that was, you know, the, the first kind of bridge where it's like there is a world beyond this. There are people that do care that do want to support. Right. What about your parents? Did they have any idea what was going on? Not, uh, not really, because I was, you know, deceptive, and I was, uh, you know, always thought myself pretty clever. With, hey, I'm gonna be over at this friend's house this weekend, uh, and so yeah, I and I was dating a girl in the city, so it was very easy for me to say I was gonna be somewhere, and then not be, um, and then uh, over time I became kind of more cavalier, where I'm like hosting parties in our basement and. You know, my parents like hear something's going on, but I told them it's just a couple of friends from like the tennis team. And when in reality, it's you know a much bigger thing. And then um, they would find like beer cans and be like, "Hey, like this was clearly more than just you and a couple of friends." And no, no, it like my my buddy Alex was a big like football player. Oh, he just he drank like all of that. And 
Um, so I think they, um, uh, they sense, Hey, like something's up here, but he's getting good grades and he's like doing well at sports. And, you know, debate was my uh, big thing in high school. Like he's doing well, like literally I was like the state champion debater. And so like, Hey, it can't be that bad. Like he's like doing so well, at these things. So that, um, that's how I was able to deceive myself as well. Like, Oh, I don't have a problem. Like I'm, you know, checking all these boxes, getting into college, getting a scholarship. And uh, in reality, it's just, no, you're just a high functioning addict. You're someone that uh, unfortunately can get away with it for a time, though that doesn't exactly. mean be that way forever. Yep, exactly. So now you're, you're so you were doing opioids in high school, right? Uh, I was, yes. Okay, yep. so I'm assuming you took all of that with you to college. A little bit, and, and yeah, so... I, uh, I've actually, to my knowledge, I don't think I've ever bought, like, uh, I would basically, I had just like a really convenient, like friends, dad's a doctor and, you know, he may very well have had his own opiate issue given like the quantity around. And so, uh, yeah, I was basically, I had just a, such a regular, easy supply. And, uh, as listeners know, like opiates are very, very addictive. And before you know it, it's like you have a dependency and you don't feel right without them and you feel amazing when you're on them. So like, you know, that's like, the logic of my brain at the time. Um, right. I get to college and I actually go to school in Chicago. So uh, across the country and don't actually have a convenient opiate hookup. And I'm also just totally broke because I was a landscaper saving just a little bit for kind of like a little bit of spending money, but not enough to stretch that into like a drug habit for sure. And, uh, you know, University of Chicago, it's like pretty rigorous. I'm like on the track team. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. So I don't have time to work the way that I would need to, to support that anyway. So, uh, I end up joining a fraternity where there's always kegs, like always there's a keg tap that you can always go drink from at no cost. And there's usually vodka and like rum, tequila, like there's like hard alcohol all around. And there's a party like every night on campus. And so I uh, kind of like switched gears and like really doubled back down on alcohol. And as listeners are aware, you're kind of a cool guy if you drink a lot and you're kind of a cool guy if you're dancing with like the cute girl at the party. And so for me, it was like a win, win, win. Oh, wow. I get to like get buzz and people think it's awesome. And I get to like meet cool people and cute girls. Like this is great. And it, um, so yeah, the, the next kind of phase of my like you know, addictive arc here is, um, lots and lots of, of alcohol. And in fact, you know, drunk, basically, uh, drunk or high almost every day during during college and again high functioning did, did you drop the opioids during college or were you still doing I, them i when i was in school it would basically be whatever i had stashed i got it to go because uh, I, I didn't have like a supplier um uh, hookup in chicago so it would basically be like beginning of term maybe and then i would like try to save a couple for uh like a special occasion or whatever but uh, yeah it was much more like back home deal and then i i would try to like steal um, before I headed out so that I had a, a bit of a supply getting to, uh, to school. And how were your grades in college? Were you able to keep them up in college? I, yeah, in fact, I did even better in college. Like I had, wow. uh, yeah, I did. I did well. I was like toward the top of my class honors each semester. Um, and like, you know, I was uh, an like a multi-sport athlete in college. Um, I was uh, elected student government president. I started an NGO that, you know, actually helped a lot of people and um, is still running 12 plus years later. So it, um, no one, like even friends who I spent a lot of time with just like, Oh, like this guy likes to work hard, play hard. And you know, that's relatively common amongst like students. And so it, uh, I was very much a chameleon able to kind of blend in. And the few times where people are like, Hey, like, dude, I like, 
you've been going like really hard the last few nights. Like, hey, shouldn't we take a little break? And said with no, no malice, like that was said like from pure love. I took that as like an affront, like, what? Like, no, I me a problem. You've got the problem. Like trying to like, you know, blame and deny. And then let me just go hang out with this other crew over here. Let me just go chill with these guys who haven't been seeing me on this bender for last week. And um, that is what I would kind of roll with. And then after a week or two, like this, someone in this crew is like, Hey dude, like you're going kind of hard. Like, mm-hmm. no, that's you. And then I like circle back over here. And so it, uh, you know, I think many of us um, with uh, histories of addiction, there's like this manipulation that kind of goes with it. And there's this like multiple masks that you must wear. And I was like good at that. And it's like scary. It's like, I don't want to be this manipulative, you know, lying, hypocritical guy. And yet that's what this does to you because that's like your coping mechanism to get your fix and kind of keep rolling down the road. Right. Well, Okay, so your life is going well. You've started an NGO that you said is still in existence today, and you're able to s- exist and survive and function. So, why get clean? What happened? What was your your epiphany or your point of no return? Why did you decide to get clean? Yeah, so it um, I felt like a profound emptiness. So I, I was basically like checking the box of I'm achieving literally everything that I set out to achieve. Like I'm doing really really well, and I feel like totally rudderless and just I'm lacking purpose and I'm lacking uh, a direction like a true north as I go and that's like really alarming because like hey if I'm not happy now and things are going so well like what is how am I ever going to be happy Um, and that was sort of this profound question that was weighing on me and around that time I had started going to church started reading the bible like so faith kind of re-entered my life in a meaningful way Um, I met a um, a really, really wonderful uh, fellow, Pat Moriarty, um, who uh, was a, yeah, just a, a long time. He's a big runner and was a long time AA sponsor, is a long time AA sponsor. And he, um, uh, he and I got to talking about like what life is like in recovery. And he sensed like, hey, this guy, Greg, who I barely know at this moment, I think you know, he reminds me a lot of myself. And I think he has an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and substances. And so like, I started getting like seeds planted, like the faith piece, this AA sponsor, uh, and, and what recovery can mean. Uh, my point of no return to answer your question more directly, I um, had a complete dream come true. I got a full scholarship to Cambridge University in the UK, thanks to uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So Bill Gates writes this big check that completely funds my study, and it actually is going to pay me to be a business school student, to work on this NGO, to try to build it to the next level. Literally a dream come true. Like I, I'm pinching myself, like, how can this be my life? How can this be real? And it's real. It's amazing. Like, here it is. And, you know, I'm thick-skulled and foolish. And so I'm feeling really lonely as I go off to England. I don't know anyone. I've never been here. People talk funny. The food's kind of gross. Like, the weather, like, sucks like all of this is like uh, i don't know the weather's like seattle isn't it i mean come on it it totally is that one's a bad excuse but yeah i (laughs) i feel just like super lonely and you know i had this wonderful girlfriend in college we've broken up so like i'm feeling super alone and like just over here and that i realize is one of my like addiction triggers and so i have all of this money in my pocket thanks to mr gates and i'm feeling really lonely very, very dangerous recipe for a guy with a thick skull like me. And so I, I'm hitting the pubs every day, um, you know, getting pints, getting, uh, uh, getting shots, doing all this. And then I meet a fellow who's got a cocaine hookup and nothing like cash and cocaine. And so I, uh, 
I'm basically just like having the time of my life and masking like the loneliness that I'm actually feeling inside with just like, Hey, life of the party. I'm like meeting all these like really interesting people, these beautiful women. And kind of like, I'm like this yank. I'm like this American guy here. Like I'm just having a great time doing all this. And uh, by the end of the first term, like end of November, beginning of December. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's one eight six six two three one five nine two four. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I get a bill for rent and it's like, oh, like, whoa, I like that's way more than I was expecting. Whoops. Um, And then... I go, you know, like within a day or two of this big bill, that's a big surprise. I go to the liquor store, like I've done all the time, and my debit card gets declined. I am completely and totally out of money. This stipend has been spent, completely squandered on drugs and alcohol. And I've got this massive bill um, right here. And so it's like this moment where like a ton of bricks is beginning to hit. And I basically see a train coming at me in slow motion. And within like three days of that, I get a summons to the provost, this like high academic official at, uh, at Cambridge. And he brings me to his office. Like, Hey, like I've, um, you don't need to lie to me. I've been, I've he- been hearing stories about you. Um, and I've also heard you've, you're missing rent now. Um, and within a few moments of that opener, he, um, um, calls me a disgrace and threatens to, uh, yeah, expel me from Cambridge, you know, this dream and then have me deported. Um, and so like that, that for me was like the ton of bricks hitting. And it was really the first time in my life where, um, uh, you know, I've been kind of crafting this like public image of myself and like this young entrepreneur, this young athlete, you know, this like building this like statue, this tribute to myself, you know, marble, marble man over here. And this was the first time where, you know, I, I call it the mud on the marble where kind of, kind of was- caught up with you. It caught up with yeah, me in a, yeah. in a huge way. And, and this is like this dream that I'm living that's now turning to a nightmare because of my choices. And that was uh, overwhelming because previously I was able to kind of, you know, point to stuff like, no, no, it's because of like, 
it's that person's fault or it's this thing or that. In this case, like, no, like there, there's no sugarcoating any of this. It's like, you've been a fool and now um, you're getting your, you know, the justice is here. And wow, that, that stung and that was scary. And I'm going through withdrawals now because like, I don't have any money to buy any more cocaine or any more alcohol. And my, you know, my point of no return is lacing up my running shoes, running out the door and basically running until it hurts. Like I, I need to like sort of flush my body like in a literal and figurative sense. And I need to feel like the pain and the burn uh, to do that. And, uh, you know, it became very, very, very therapeutic, just getting away from that little dorm that had become a prison for my addiction. And it felt so therapeutic to just kind of like feel the breeze in my face, feel the fresh air and start envisioning a life beyond you know, alcohol, opiates and cocaine. That's amazing. So basically running was part of your whole rehab treatment, if not the whole thing. Did you do any sort of, shall we say, formal rehab or was that the start and that's just what you did was you ran? Yep. So it, um, I, you know, I tried quitting over a hundred times. Uh, and so I, you know, so I, on the hundred first try, Lacing up the running shoes is what you know helped me kind of get to those first days and then that week. Um, I'm you know immensely grateful to this simple act of putting one foot in front of another. That's very therapeutic for me. It helps calm like anxiety and the, the feeling of disconnection that would trigger these relapses. And then you know I think the faith piece played a uh, a really big role. I had two mentors and a wonderful pastor in England who I was able to be you know, open with, uh, not fully the extent of the addiction, but like, Hey, I'm feeling better. It's been three weeks since I've had a drink and like, wow, like that's not a good thing. Like keep going. Um, and then I had this, uh, AA sponsor I mentioned, he, um, he has a, like a couple times weekly newsletter where he basically post reflections on recovery and like the journey. And so reading that, reading my Bible, going like prayer meetings and church and then, uh, running like that was sort of like the little triumvirate, uh, that I used to, uh, kind of work through. And then you start building momentum, you start building a new identity around that. And, you know, the, for me, like the first 40 days uh, were the toughest. In fact, I had made it to 40 days twice before and then relapsed right after uh, around Lent um, both times, which was a total bummer and like just really, really tough. And so I, uh, I don't actually know what was different this last time, except it was like particularly a shameful call out from the provost. And it felt like my world was kind of crashing down and I didn't, you know, I, I'm a lot of things, um, but I'm not like a robber. Uh, and so like, I didn't want to like rob people for money to fuel this addiction. And so it, um, that, uh, yeah, I don't actually know what did that beyond a miracle. And so that's. It, it's interesting because when, let me ask you a question. When you did the earlier 40 days, yep. were you running when you were doing those or no? Actually, so. I, I was, yes. Yeah. So, like I, okay. I started running senior high school and loved it. And so basically I, I was a multi-sport athlete, but it was like, wow, like running is actually like kind of my favorite thing. I really, really love this. And so I was still running, um, though like in that environment, yeah, I'm in a fraternity, like there's just a lot of temptations all around. And um, I basically like for Lent, you know, I'm, I'm actually Protestant, but like I celebrate Lent each year. And, right. uh, you know, it's a, this at the end of those 40 days, it'd be like, well, I was such a good boy. Like I didn't drink at all. And then like, here's this temptation, like literally on day 41, it's time to get, you know, blackout again. It's like, no, like that is like very short sighted and uh, just letting those temptations get you. So I don't actually know it was separate this time, except it has slowly stuck now for uh, 3000 plus days. 
3,000 plus days. That's 10 years. Eight, eight, yeah, eight plus and day by day, eight, I'm going to get Almost 10, 10 yeah. 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 Well, I, without, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what it appears to me is that the, when it worked this last time, you were doing the physical address, which running can do to help you get rid of any toxins, but you also had the mentors to help you with both the spiritual and the mental aspects. So it seems like you, you had surrounded yourself with people who were going to help you get sober rather than being in a fraternity, which everybody wants to get drunk pretty much. Yes. It's or totally, they don't care if you get drunk. Yeah, yeah, indeed. The environment is so important and it's something that I neglected. Um, but you, I think we neglect that as addicts at our own peril. Like you need to be in an environment that's conducive and especially if you're actively you know, struggling uh, even more so. Right. Okay. So did you finish um, college at Cambridge? Did you finish? I, I finished. So I have a master's in management. Um, okay. Barely. I, uh, and my, my poor, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I stuck it out, didn't get expelled. I was able to make rent. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's a happy ending there, which is, yes, I did make it. So, huh. Okay. So you finished Cambridge and you had a master's yeah. in management. So what happened to you after that? Tell us how you ended up where you are now. Yep. So it's a, uh, uh, it's a journey to the far east. So uh, during Cambridge, I basically realized I need a fresh start. And if I go back to Chicago or even my hometown of Seattle, it's likely I'm going to fall in like the same cruise that I was rolling with before. And that's not going to give me the chance to actually like make a real lifestyle shift uh, and become a better person without the, the influence here. And so um, I had a business idea to uh, help students get mentorship as they apply to graduate school to help them earn scholarships so they can actually pay for it. Because I'd been, you know, I had wonderful mentorship that helped me earn a scholarship to Cambridge. I wanted to to pay that forward and see if, hey, can I actually create a business around this? And the market that was most promising for this idea was actually China. And so I, and I'd always wanted to go to, you know, I I had spent three weeks in Beijing on a foreign affairs uh, fellowship three years before. So I knew a very tiny bit about um, China. I'd written a bachelor's thesis about it and wanted to basically go like, I don't want to just be book smart at some place. I want to have a little bit of street smarts. And so moved to Shanghai, September, 2012 with this business idea. And that was a lot of my first months, years in recovery was there in China. And a lot of challenges with starting a business as you're starting recovery in that it's really stressful. You're working crazy hours. And then in a, in a in foreign America, country, and I'm assuming you don't speak fluent Chinese. Yes, yeah, certainly did not um, speak any Chinese when I kind of got settled there. And so, yeah, that's really tough. And I mentioned like loneliness as a trigger. And so that was really, really intense loneliness where um, everything you know and love is th- literally thousands of miles away across an ocean. And so, um, again, the faith piece and running were vital. And then, uh, you know, I did a decent job, like staying in touch through Skype and through like email uh, with mentors and, and with Pat so that I can kind of like keep inspired on the recovery path. And so, um, the extra challenge of this is, you know, even in America, like alcohol is a part of business culture for sure. Uh, it's much, much stronger in China. We're like, it's almost bizarre if you're not drinking and it's like, how can I trust you if you're not drinking? And so there's, wow. there's a, a, a powerful cultural like stereotype uh, around alcohol and it's a very powerful like social and business lubricant uh, to get stuff done. And so that's, you know, 
uh, it's, you're already playing hard mode, not speaking the language fluently, not knowing the culture as well, and then not drinking, my goodness. And so that, uh, that made things more difficult, though I also got good at saying, hey, like, no thanks, and you know, basically like for health and religious reasons. And like people, oh, it's like this American guy, he's different. He's basically too weak to drink alcohol is what I think they thought, but whatever. Like I'm totally fine with you thinking I'm weak so that I can like, try to stay strong over here. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. whatever. <laughs> now, is that the NGO that, you're talking, that you talked about earlier? Actually, so this is the second company. This one's called, oh, okay. uh, the NGO is called Money Think, and we help okay. students make informed choices around college affordability. And okay. you can check us out, moneythink.org. And then my day job um, that I'm still working on today is called dyad, D-Y-A-D.com. And this is the mentorship platform that helps students applying for college and graduate school get scholarships to, to pay for it. Cool. But you have kind of a, a new goal that you're working on in terms of your running. I do. Yes. Talk about it. Yeah. So I celebrated 3000 days sober on March 16th. And that was like a really just, that felt really big to me. Like I never thought I would. It's 1030. 1030. Thank you, Mr. Robot. Um, uh, celebrating 3000 days. I just, that was like a dream come true. I never thought I would make it anywhere near there. And here I am. And so I am a little crazy as folks are gathering. And so I want to basically celebrate 3000 days in a big, crazy way to mark the occasion. And so my goal is to actually run from New York city with a foot in the Atlantic ocean all the way across the country uh, to Seattle and put a foot in the Pacific ocean. And that's about 3000 miles. And I want to do this journey both to have a big running goal, but I actually want to connect with fellow addicts and those in recovery along the way. And my goal is actually to create a documentary film in partnership with a wonderful film director named Sarah Shetsky and the International Documentary Association to create a, a piece of film that helps to inform and inspire around how we as Americans can actually overcome the addiction epidemic. Because 40 million Americans are dealing with this. And I think a lot of us feel like we're alone. And so I, I'm so fortunate that you know, there's now a podcast community around addiction where folks can actually get inspiration. And I want to be part of that solution because for years during my own addiction and in my first years of recovery, I felt totally alone. And I, I felt the stigma. I felt embarrassed to talk about it. Um, and so I don't want others going through it to feel the same way. I'd actually like them to feel empowered to take kind of ownership over their own recovery in whatever kind of form that looks like. And right. I want to share those perspectives uh, during this run while making this film. That's awesome. When are you going to start? When are you going to start this run? Yeah, so as soon as October. So okay. uh, yeah, I mean, it's either going to be October or March. And it's going to depend a little bit on where COVID's at because COVID's going crazy. Um, and I don't want to become a vector for you know the coronavirus. So aiming to do it safely. So October or early, um, early 2021. And uh, yeah, it's, it's coming together. A lot of like logistics and operations and production and fundraising behind the scenes. Um, but we've got a big mission and we're going to make it happen. That's awesome. So you say you want to connect with addicts. What, it, what's your concept of how that's going to work? Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be a couple things. Um, so we have a production team that's been doing like research about just like really incredible and inspiring stories ranging from like here are children who have been orphaned because of like meth and they've actually rallied together to form like a support circle it's like wow that's amazing 
never, at least was, we never hear stories like that. That's awesome. And that should be part of the narrative, how people are rising above these horrible challenges. Greg, um, can you then, do me a favor? Sorry. Um, yeah. Tell that story again. Cause right when you started, right after you said children who's, who were orphaned because of meth, you kind of froze mm. up a little bit. So start back with that again. Oh, fair, fair enough. And yeah, a car actually drove, drove by. So maybe that goofed <laughs> up my wife. Yeah. So we, we're aiming to tell informative and inspiring stories. And, you know, so for example, there are a number of children that have been orphaned by meths and the ravages of methamphetamines. Um, these children have actually rallied together to form a survivor circle to better support one another as they go. Um, in my neck, Louis, at least, we never hear stories like that. And I think we would be so much better off if we can learn the full scale of both the challenges and then also the chances um, to show kind of the full spectrum here. And so um, as I run across the country, we've identified a number of just really amazing little communities and stories that we want to connect with as I go through running. And then, of course, um, part of the beauty about documentary filmmaking is there's a ton of serendipity because when you've got somebody, some Yahoo uh, running and then a fellow with a camera, well, people, you know, what, what's up with this? I've never seen you around here. What's up with the camera? Uh, I want to share, hey, I'm running across the country because I'm passionate about learning more about how we can support addicts in America and I'm part of that solution. And some of these folks are going to have their own stories either on a personal level with a family member, a partner, a colleague, a sibling, um, you name it. And we want to basically uh, share some of these stories, both through social media, through this film, and then create a, a, a space for dialogue where more families around the dinner table and around their living room can have open, honest, conversations about addiction, about the help and support they need. Um, I, I realize I'm one of the very, very, very lucky ones. I'm from a really nice town, Bainbridge Island off Seattle. I have an incredible family. I have wonderful friends, coaches, pastors in my life. And yet like my story could have been very different. I could have killed someone in a drunk driving accident. I could have ended up in jail. I could have, you know, taken my own life due to like depression and overdosing and all this. I'm still here. I'm very, very lucky. And I want to, I want to try to pay it forward. Um, because there are so many people out of the 40 million dealing with addiction that don't have the support system that I naturally have in my life. And that's just good fortune. There's no merit in that. That's just me being a lucky guy. And a lot of people aren't so lucky. I want to try to help kind of bridge part of that gap and create a dialogue. I think it's awesome. So let me ask you this. If someone listening to the podcast wants to connect with you because maybe they have a good story and maybe they want to connect with you on your run, how would they do that? Yeah, I, and I would thank you for the question because I would love to connect. Um, the best way is actually to connect via gregrunsfar.com um, or on Instagram at gregrunsfar. Drop me a note and I would, I would love to hear from you because, yeah, I, I get inspired by it. Like, I love hearing people and no matter where you are at in your own addiction or recovery journey, um, we can learn from each other. We can grow together. Cool. Will people be able to track your journey on the website? Yes, they will. Um, we'll, have a, we'll in fact have a little live tracker where you'll know where, where I'm at. And um, if anyone likes to run or walk or bike, you'll be very, very welcome to join me for a few miles out on the trail. Oh, I think that's awesome. That's just awesome. So Greg, to wrap this up, if you had just one message to give to the listeners, be they addicts or friends and family of addicts, what would that one message be? Yeah, my, my one message is follow your smile. 
Um, figure out what it is that makes you happy, that gives you purpose, and keep that in your mind's eye. Start investing more of your time there. And I have a feeling that can actually help you with your first steps to recovery. Running makes me smile. And so I followed my smile to get clean and sober for the first time and then to stay that way. And I, I predict if you follow your smile, that's going to be one big reason to find your recovery path as well. I think that's awesome. Greg, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And be sure and keep us, keep us in the loop in terms of when you start your run, because I would yeah. love to follow along and you know, promote it and you know, get people to reach out while you do that. I, I absolutely will. And I super, super appreciate it. Joni, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the interview with Greg Nance. I thought his story was quite unique. And I love his whole plan on running the 3,000 miles. So we will keep you posted on that. If you're listening to this podcast and you feel isolated because of the whole coronavirus situation, please know that there is help available. You can reach out. You can reach out to us. There are other organizations online that are there willing to help you. So don't feel like you're alone. Whether you're an addict, whether you're a loved one of an addict, just reach out. Reach out to someone. And if you can't reach out to anybody else, reach out to our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai. The website is narcononojai.org. Reach out to someone. That's sometimes the hardest step. But if you can do that, that'll start you on the path to recovery. Stay safe. Stay well. We'll be back again next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.